Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Need Some Introduction. I'm your host, Victor. And in today's episode, we'll kick things off with a conversation with Sona about the finale of Blackbird, an Apple TV thriller that just wrapped up last week and has been, anecdotally at least, I believe, one of the biggest hits they've had on Apple TV+. Not the phenomena of Severance or Ted Lasso, for example, but another feather in their crown. And I would assume they'll be working with Lehane again on some future TV series. After that, we have Ian's response to my query last week about the connection between Bruce Springsteen and Neil Young. And we continue this musical daisy chain we've been creating, adding one song at a time. I will be putting together a playlist of these songs on Spotify and also YouTube. So stay tuned if you are looking to find all those songs in one place. And then later I'll be having a conversation about the finale of Blackbird with my sister. A little bit more about that show. Plus a brief review of the movie Prey, the prequel to Predator. Mostly successful, but I do have some thoughts on that, which just premiered last week also. And we did happen to watch it while we were on vacation. But mostly we will be discussing the career of Bo Burnham. Just available this week on Netflix was Outtakes from his show Inside, the hugely successful Emmy-winning Inside. And I've seen that Outtakes special, which has actually been available on YouTube. But mostly, this is just an excuse to discuss Bo Burnham and mostly to talk about that specific special, the Inside special, which he shot by himself during the pandemic. Before we get to all of that, just some show notes. First of all, we will be wrapping up Better Call Saul, the very last episode of this show not only of the season, but of the entire show, which we will be publishing on Monday. Expect to see that Monday night, late Monday night. Sona and I will have an instant reaction to that episode. Later in the week, in next week's weekend episode, expect to have Nick and possibly Ray back on the show to discuss the new Marvel show, She-Hulk, which features She-Hulk, a new character, plus Hulk, plus Daredevil, according to the previews anyway. So they're pulling out some pretty big guns for this character, which on paper is a very silly character, (laughs) a Hulk, which is also a lawyer, She-Hulk attorney at law. So I'm just curious to see what Marvel's plan is with this character. It seems like it's gonna be pretty important to the MCU, but what a silly thing on paper. But I'm very curious to see what this show has in store for us and what it might mean for the MCU in general. Also in that conversation, I will be discussing with Nick and Ray the upcoming House of the Dragon, Game of Thrones spinoff show, which begins next Sunday, not this Sunday, but the following, which I will be covering here week to week. And also I'll be discussing with them how I think that honestly, that last season of Game of Thrones could have been saved with some relatively small changes. So I do want to have that conversation, talk about the future of the franchise, which HBO has many plans for, and preview that upcoming show. Make sure you subscribe so you know when all those episodes become available. If you'd like to support the show, make sure you recommend us to somebody who might appreciate the conversation. And of course, we appreciate any feedback. Drop us a line at needsomeintroduction at gmail.com. With all that out of the way, here's my conversation with Sona about Blackbird, the serial killer thriller from Apple TV, which just wrapped up this past week. If every interaction with another person had the same weight, we'd all go insane, Larry. No, you fucking hear me? No, 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 no. Shut the fuck up and listen to me. We are part of something. I am a part of something. When I folded those clothes, that was an act of kindness from a... a... a deity. Whose clothes? Who are we talking about? Trisha Reitler's. Everyone was looking for her. I still are. She got in your van too? Okay, so Blackbird. So I have been covering Blackbird not week to week, but we have had three or four conversations about Blackbird. And last week I did a full episode one through episode five kind of walkthrough of the show. And I did recommend it. And of course the show wrapped up this past weekend and Sona, you have caught up on it. So I was curious to get, I don't think we've had a full conversation about the show up until this point. So just what you felt about the show in general, leading up to the finale and then 
the finale and you can avoid spoilers at first and then we'll get into spoilers of the last episode i think you could spoil everything up until the last episode if you want okay i i really enjoyed this i have to say i like that it was not that many episodes as well very well suited to my attention span (laughs) yes Um, the casting here was really great especially taryn egerton Mm mm-hmm um, I thought it was amazing in this role. I don't know him from anything else, but I think without his charisma and mm-hmm, his mm-hmm. charm, this might not have been as interesting and fun to watch, but he really drew me in. And I think um, very emblematic of that character that, you know, like is not a perfect person, makes some bad decisions, but he's just so freaking likable yep. that, you know, you still are friends with him or spend time with him, even though certain aspects are very, you know, self-destructive or dangerous about him. I think that casting was one of the things that really kept me watching. It was great to see Greg Kinnear again. Can't remember yep. the last time I saw him. Mm-hmm. Yep. I thought he was great here. I think I actually would have liked to have seen more of him. The casting of Larry, is it? Yeah, the actor is Paul Walter Hauser. Yeah, he was excellent. Although, you know, I mentioned to you before the voice, the voice affectation. I, I don't know if it's an affectation. I don't know if it's supposed to be a natural voice. I did not really care for it. But, um, but there was a lot going on with that character that was really interesting, made this really compelling to watch. All around, just I thought, you know, a lot of good things here. The one thing I thought was kind of strange, and I have not gone down the Wikipedia hole of seeing how much of this is really based in fact or not. But the um, the mafia aspect was kind of strange yes. to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And I, I don't know that we needed that, even if it was real. I yeah. think we could have told the whole story without that. So that to me was a little strange. What did you think about it all? I like the show in general. I think last week's episode was the strongest, the one where they kind of bond, because I find the most interesting aspect of the show, this parallel they're trying to draw between these two very, very unlikely, quote unquote, friends, that when he starts to realize he has commonality with this guy, it makes him extremely uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was the most interesting. That was kind of what I was waiting for the whole show to come to. So it kind of reached that point last week. Uh, I didn't really like this last episode and uh, and the the reasons are, um, and I'll tell you the Wikipedia research, by the way, which I was very surprised to find that I'll just tease it here that uh, it's very true to life actually, or or I should say very true to his memoir. (laughs) And maybe that's a a critique I'll have. The closing credits made it seem like it was much more of an accurate representation than I had assumed it was actually. Yeah. It's actually surprisingly close to, the truth as we know it and i'd say some of the same things you'd say i would i, I do know taron edgerton i knew him from the the kingsman action movies these very violent comedies uh based on a comic book and that have been very popular and then of course he did he played elton john in the rocket man movie which i did not see but he got rave reviews for it he won a bunch of critics awards i don't think he got an academy award nomination but pretty much won everything except for the academy award he was not considered a serious actor and i think that kind of put him more in a uh, in line with that Mm-hmm. I found he did a very good job of pulling off the cockiness without me feeling the real interiority of the character. Like, you know, we're supposed to feel that he is disturbed by these correlations that he has to um, Larry, but I don't feel it in his performance. I feel it's a little too surface for me, but, but I mean, at moments, I think the charisma and that cockiness and that character he plays is right on the nose. I just feel it's a little one note for me over the course of you know this whole entire show. I just don't feel he has an arc, if we believe it that. But I think we're supposed to believe that he has changed, right? We see him on that plane in the finale. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. like they're really showing us like a different version of him now. I'm not sure I bought in 100%. I do still recommend the this season overall. And uh, I just felt had some issues with the finale. So we're going to spoil the finale now. So if you haven't caught up now, everybody, I do recommend the show. But and I'm going to tell you my criticism of the last uh, episode. And, and I think you're going to agree with me, Sona, because my sister also liked the finale. And then as soon as I pointed out a few things, she goes, oh, yeah, I don't like any of those things. <laughs> and maybe <laughs> that was where the kind of the things that rubbed me the wrong way. A lot of it is not even the way it's written. It's the way this, the episode is constructed and opening with that terrible dream sequence. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I, think I did I not recover. So well. No, I did <laughs> yeah. not like the dream sequence either. So I'm with you. 
yeah, for me, it was almost like I was so turned off by the dream sequence. I was waiting. I had like a chip on my shoulders waiting for the episode to win me back. And it just wasn't strong enough. Almost like if they just had no dream sequence, I probably would have given that episode a, a stronger uh, rating. It, first of all, it's very ugly, but it's also very perfunctory. It's like it, basically that's how the whole episode felt. It felt like they're connecting the dots in such a perfunctory way that even the dream sequence felt perfunctory. Right. It was just mm -hmm. so cliched mm -hmm. the way that it all played out. And uh, yeah, so it was a little bland for me compared to some of the more interesting parts of the show. Not terrible, though. I mean, like better than I think, you know, most of these based on a true life shows. I just kind of thought it was maybe the weakest for me, maybe the weakest of all the episodes in, in the season. But overall, I still think it's a good show. Now I'll tell you my Wikipedia breakdown that uh, this is extremely true to life, by the way. Um, he did befriend uh, the Chin Gigante who I don't know if you guys knew about him, but he in New York City, he was known as the odd father <laughs> and mm -hmm. uh, he was uh, in trial for many, many years. So he'd walk around. You probably heard stories about this guy. He'd walk around like in flip flops and like a pink robe or something. And, uh, you know, all disheveled and people are saying, oh, he's losing his mind. He's losing his mind. But everybody kind of felt like, no, it's so that he can end up in, you know, he didn't want to go to a prison. He wanted to be found mentally incompetent. But of course, he ended up in this prison for the criminally insane. Right. Mm hmm. Which, of course, is, you know, maybe an, a worse way to do your time than <laughs> than other uh, forms of jail. But he did befriend them and they did play bocce together, etc. As a matter of fact, he Gigante took up so much time of, uh, of his time, so much of James Keene's time that he uh, was unable to spend as much time with Larry. So he could only hang out with Larry at, like late at night or just in these little moments here and there trying to befriend him because Gigante took up so much time. Uh, the rest of the time, the rest of the days. That's pretty funny. Vincent Gigante. He did end up in solitary confinement after he had a blow up with Larry. It was because the psychiatrist got annoyed that he was kind of interfering supposedly with her, uh, you know, treatment of her patient. Uh, he did try to reach out to the other psychiatrist. By the way, <laughs> this makes you want, never want to cut a deal with the DA. Uh, he did reach out. The guy was on vacation. They did not pass along. And the more he basically was trying to say that he had this deal in place, whatever, the more they thought he was crazy, the more he spent time in solitary confinement. So that whole sequence, which seems totally manufactured, actually happens, right? So it's pretty crazy. Okay, so here's the thing I'm going to say. And these are real life people. So I'm going to talk as if they're fictional people because I'm not accusing anybody of lying or committing <laughs> crimes. <laughs> I don't want any backlash against what I'm about to say. So first of all, maybe this is a limitation of the show itself. It's based on this guy's memoir, right? Maybe that's where we don't see the darker side of Jimmy is because they're trying to appease him because he's one of the producers and this is based on his memoir, right? But more important than that is that none of Larry's purported locations ever panned out. They've never found a single body of these girls. Mm -hmm. So there's a, a possibility that he may have sussed out details from the DA, from interviews. He might be more clever than we think he is. And he's such a pathological liar that he knows how to extract these details from these people and use them to enhance his stories, right? Potentially, right? They've never found any bodies correlating to these girls. And not only that, we don't even have proof that James, that he ever confessed to James. They released James from his time in prison based on a polygraph that he passed, that he basically said, but James is maybe a pathological liar. Once again, the character of James, <laughs> I'm not saying anything about real people, <laughs> is potentially a pathological liar. So maybe he can beat a polygraph. Wait, James is pa a pathological liar, Jimmy? Yeah, Jimmy's a pathological liar. He's a criminal. He's been lying to his family, his but friends, his whole entire life. Why would he need to be released based on a polygraph? Oh, because they, he never got a confession from um, Larry, but he still wanted to get the exoneration. So once he was released from solitary confinement. And of course, the DA was embarrassed by the turn of events. They're like, well, we should probably comply with our contract. And they said, well, but he hasn't gotten any confession from Larry. And they go, well, he claims they have. So and we don't have any proof of it in any way, because none of the evidence, none of the details he gave us panned out. But if he passes a polygraph saying, you know, all the things that Larry supposedly told him, then we'll let him go. And that's the, okay. actual, that's the actual reason they released him. I see. Okay. So not, not as sexy as the way they play it out in. Yeah. The, however, true to the story, Larry's brother did coerce him into having him confess finally to these crimes. However, none of those details have ever panned out to be true. 
Hmm. So not to say that this didn't happen, but for me, and once again, this is not the show I got. And oftentimes I get in trouble because I have an expectation of a show. <laughs> that's not what I get, but that's basically my feeling of it is I feel like there's all this ambiguity still in everything that happened there between these characters. And I would want it something that lives in that ambiguity. And I feel like the show doesn't. I feel like the show is trying to convince us that this is all factually true across the board. And I'm not sure that that's true. Mm. But for what it is, I think it's well-made. I think it's pretty well-written. I think the performances usually are very strong. And uh, yeah, I thought that the story they were telling was relatively successful. I think all the really interesting themes here in the show aren't fully explored. It's my opinion. I think that's fair. I also think, right, how many episodes was this? Six? Six, yeah. So I do think there's only so much you can do when you're trying to tell a kind of complicated story in six episodes i think you know often we talk about how shows go on too long but but this is very truncated i think to try and develop all of the main events that happened i also want to say i really liked the the uh development of the relationship with the brother Um, and i thought the conversation that the agents have with the brother in the last episode was really compelling to me like i thought the acting was amazing. I couldn't look away from the screen as he's like explaining what happened in the tent um, that night and how he realized what his brother was capable of, I thought was amazing. So I, I do get what you're saying, but I also think that for this format and all they were trying to do, I still, um, I think it did a, a good job of, of hitting all the really interesting plot points here. I also really liked the sequence with the brother talking to Larry, getting Larry to confess and Larry, you know, the hurt on Larry's face, uh, you know, even if he is a killer, but just this, you know, fact that, you know, his brother's basically uh, theoretically not taking his side here or calling him a crazy person. Right. And, uh, you know, that, that the performance there is really strong from both of them, actually. You're my brother. You're, you're my brother. And I failed you. I didn't look after you right. Like if you if you get the the flu, I'm supposed to get you medicine. If you're cold and I have a blanket, I'm supposed to share it with you. And if you're fucked up in how you think, I'm supposed to help you not do bad things. No, 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 no Gary, not not you. I need you to do what's right here, Larry. Not for them, not for them, but for you. You're never gonna stop living in fucking agony until you do. Gary. Not you, Gary, please. Hey, hey, please. Let me help you. So I think that that was really well done as well. Uh, like I mentioned, the, the you know what I think is that uh, you know oftentimes with cases like this, there are all these layers of ambiguity, and I don't feel like the show plays with them. And to your point, I definitely think that if this had been like a ten episode season, unless they'd done a lot more with this, it would have become too much. It would have been too long. However, even as it is, I mean, I think probably like episode three or so, there's not that much happens in in, in the, some of those middle episodes. So I think that they could have used that time to build up these themes a little bit more. I feel like they try to do a lot of that thematic paralleling of the characters all in episode five, which once again is my favorite episode, but I think it all happens right there towards the end of the season. Mm. They, they could have moved that much earlier in, in the show. Mm. Um. So yeah, that's kind of where I land with it. And I'll just make a recommendation, which I think you're going to agree with me, Sona, a show that I think it also takes you inside the complexities of the prosecutorial world and plays a lot with all these different ambiguities is The Night Of, which I think is exceptional compared to this show. I think it's definitely a better version of this show. Very, very different, I should say. But Very different, but yes, The Night Of is excellent. I agree. Yeah, so anybody who hasn't seen The Night Of with Riz Ahmed and with John Turturro, giving exceptional performances. Oh, and the late 
Michael K. Williams, of course, also exceptional in that. So definitely check that out. It's on HBO available to stream. I mean, I'm not sure though, is it fair to compare something that is based largely in reality with fiction? Oh, no, I agree. I, 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 <laughs> no, I, no, and I agree with what you're saying that you, I'm comparing something fictionalized versus something that's not, although this has been based on, so you can fictionalize large chunks of it once you make that uh, assessment. But what I would say is that I think that some of the themes I'm talking about are in the material. They're just underexplored, right? Mm. I'm not saying I'm not saying that you need to inject like some other aspect to this. They obviously bring it up. They actually, you know, uh, make that correlation in the episode itself. But they really just kind of throw it in there towards the end, where I'm like, well, isn't that kind of what would have allowed these people to befriend each other in the first place, right? So anyway, I just feel like it's not, you know, it, it's brought up but not fully explored. Basically, my. Mm. But I did like it overall. Like I said, it's definitely better than most of what's come along. I just tried to watch the Sandman show. I was going to cover that for the weekend. Boy, couldn't make it more than an episode and a half. It was excruciating. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's better than that. <laughs> um, and I also want to point out, based on the uh, the idea that there is an ambiguity here, I, I don't know how true this particular aspect is, yeah. but we do see that the dad is like systematically destroying evidence. So, <laughs> yes, yes. So it's possible that there was stuff out there that could have uh, made this a lot more clear cut, but the dad is just starting a fire every time the mail comes. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. Oh, that, that's that's something else there that, you know, okay, so like, let me tie back onto the facts of it. On um, both father's cases, by the way, on the one father's case, the, you know, um, Larry's father, who's like potentially bur burning these uh, maps, that is completely made up, by the way. So the okay. only, only proof that okay. there was a map was that, you know, James said that he saw Larry with a map and then they did eventually search, never found the map. There is no indication that he mailed it to somebody to be destroyed. Okay. There's no indication of that at all. And like I said, the only proof at all that there is this map was uh, James saying that it existed. Right. So that's the first thing that's kind of fabricated for sure. The other thing I wanted to bring up uh, in the factual story that I found very entertaining is with Jimmy's dad, who plays so dumb that he didn't know his son was committing these crimes. And once again, because they don't want to disparage anybody, especially his father, who's probably passed away at this point, that uh, they want to play it that way. But in the you know the article I read about the sh show, they said that Jimmy, at the peak of his career, was making a million dollars a year in drugs, uh, in selling drugs. And that a large part of that, his dad had like taken some really bad flyers on some bad investments and had uh, you you know, um, basically had a lot of debt that he mm -hmm. used as an excuse that he had to pay off his dad's debt. And I'm like, you're making a million dollars a year. <laughs> like how much, <laughs> how much debt could your police officer father have? <laughs> That's no excuse to become a drug dealer. <laughs> but also, you know, to that point is, you know, uh, you know, to, to follow up on that, you know, once again, disparaging someone who can't defend themselves, but still it's just the idea that nobody in the family knew what he was really doing. And I'm like, if you have hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt and this kid is paying his way out, what do you think he's doing? <laughs> right. He lives in a giant mansion. You sure. bur you burn through hundreds of thousands of dollars a year with really bad investments and playing the big shot with all your friends and he pays for all of it. It's like, wh what do you, how do you, what do you think he's doing? Yeah, <laughs> I agree with you. He's though. not a surgeon. Like, what do you think he's doing? Right. <laughs> anyway, so, so one last detail that might, you know, that is unexplored, let's say in, in the show. All right. Thank you again for the conversation. Thank you. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Greetings and welcome to Need Some Introduction. I'm Ian, Victor's sometime co-host, here to add another link to the musical daisy chain we've been creating. For a brief recap, Victor started by connecting Goodbye Yellow Brick Road by Elton John with 1986's Don't Give Up by Peter Gabriel featuring Kate Bush. I in turn link that to Neil Young's seminal hit, Heart of Gold, off his 1971 Harvest album. I wanna live, I wanna kill, I've been a minor for a heart of gold. And Victor has in turn linked that to State Trooper by Bruce Springsteen off his 1982 album, Nebraska. But I got a clear conscience about Following his 1980 release, The River, Springsteen started recording 
Nebraska in late 1981 using a four-track recorder, producing a series of spare, folk, rather dark material to be used for the album. Interestingly, a handful of tunes from these demo sessions were subsequently re-recorded with the full band and included in the 1984 smash Born in the USA, including the title track, Glory Days, Downbound Train, and I'm on Fire. Nebraska kicks off with its title track, in which Springsteen assumes the first-person narration based on the Charles Starkweather killings of the late 50s. State Trooper finds Springsteen also assuming a first-person narrator, this time of a driver with seemingly nothing left to lose. Opening the second verse with a veiled threat toward the police officer, stating that he has nothing left to lose except what's been bothering him his whole life. Although not as specific as the title track, the narrator in State Trooper can also be seen as an analog for the Starkweather killings, where he murdered 11 people in Nebraska and Wyoming between December 1957 and January 1958. Now, as for the connection between Heart of Gold and State Trooper, Victor did provide me with one clue, the year 1978, which was a very interesting year. The Camp David Accords were reached, John Wayne Gacy was arrested, Pope John Paul II was installed, and the Jonestown cult suicides happened. Also in 1978, Neil Young released Comes a Time, which was hailed as a return to his accessible sound of Harvest and featured background vocals from young protege Nicolette Larson. This is a return to Neil's folk roots after more angsty performances with Crazy Horse on records like Zuma and the previous year's American Stars and Bars. Also in 1978, Bruce Springsteen released his record Darkness on the Edge of Town, which is noted for its punk rock and country influence and signaled a shift to tighter, more concise lyrics and arrangements, aka Heartland Rock. These sessions also birthed songs such as Because the Night, which became a hit for Patti Smith in 1978 at number 13 on the U.S. charts. So interestingly, 1978 marked a turn for each of these artists uh, in direction from their previous albums. Uh, both putting them more squarely onto country folk sounds and more accessible songwriting, while also marking them both as influencers on the nascent punk and new wave scenes. Another interesting connection is that in 1978, Neil Young embarked on the Rust Never Sleeps tour, which was actually divided into two sets, an acoustic set and a full band set. Uh, which interesting about this is that it mirrors uh, Springsteen's Nebraska sessions, consisting of his solo home demo recordings, uh, mostly on acoustic instruments, and the electric Nebraska sessions, where he brought in the E Street Band with eight out of the 12 songs on Born in the USA stemming from the electric Nebraska sessions. Ultimately, I feel the connection between Heart of Gold by Neil Young and State Trooper by Bruce Springsteen are that they both come off of albums where these two uh, rock and roll legends are without their signature bands. Crazy Horse in the case of Neil Young and the E Street Band for the case of Bruce Springsteen. And now for the next link in the musical daisy chain, I'll be presenting a song from longtime Bruce Springsteen fan off of his 26th and final studio album release, Black Star, Girl Loves Me by David Bowie. very interesting choice here from Ian from a very influential artist David Bowie before we get into the Bowie and Springsteen connection let me circle back to my original correlation between Neil Young and Bruce Springsteen now in my research I found a bunch of very interesting correlations as Ian touched on here briefly 
both of these artists were in a transitional phase, Springsteen about to achieve this massive success. Meanwhile, Young was in the opposite situation where he had had this massive success with Harvest and then had run in the opposite direction, making these more grating and much less popular albums with Crazy Horse, his band, and was about to return to that sound in 78, the year that I drew everyone's attention to. But the connection I was looking for in 1978, speaking of crossing over as artists, was the fact that Neil Young wrote a song for a female artist, one of his backup singers, Lot of Love, from Nicolette Larson. And as Young was hanging out with these California folk rockers, such as James Taylor, for example, and meeting Nicolette Larson and having a big hit single, and she having a very big hit single with a song written by Neil Young. Simultaneously, in 1978, Bruce Springsteen was hanging out in New York City and getting very into the punk rock scene. And one of the rockers he met, a CBGB staple, an icon of that late 70s punk rock movement was Patti Smith, who had her only top 40 hit recording an unfinished song by Springsteen, Because the Night, which Ian did correctly mention here in his response. Also in 1978, while he had yet to have scored a top five hit, or even a top 10 actually, the Pointer Sisters on their cover album covered his song, Fire, and had a top five hit. So the first time he appeared in the top five as a songwriter was with the song Fire. Of course, he was about to have a top five hit himself the following year with Hungry Heart. Other interesting connections I found were, as Ian mentioned, their interest at this in this time period, in this specific time frame, with Roots Rock, something that Young had always been interested in and Springsteen really became much more passionate about at this phase of his career. Also, members of Crazy Horse have toured with Springsteen late in his career. So next week, in my segment, in my response to Ian's challenge, I will be giving you my theory of the case, the connections between Springsteen and Bowie. And in my research, I found some pretty surprising ones, although I'm not sure I got the one that Ian was looking for. And also next week, look forward to my next song in this daisy chain. I have already selected it. And just as a little teaser, another band that was hugely popular in the 80s and into the 90s. Another band, unfortunately, with a tragic outcome. It's very hard to avoid with all of these famous musicians to have some kind of tragedy in their stories. However, the music is not sad. The music's actually upbeat. And one last clue, it's a band that had quite a revival this year due to the show Euphoria, very prominently showcased in a specific episode of Euphoria this season. All right, so I think there's a few things I want to talk to you today about. The first one, just some sad news that happened recently, a couple of sad stories. One is Olivia Newton-John died of cancer this week. 
And I have memories of you listening, uh, of you playing the Grease soundtrack on repeat <laughs> throughout our entire childhood. So what is your memory of Olivia Newton-John? It's like her appearance in Grease, because I thought she was so glamorous at the time. And I especially liked when she came out with the all black shiny outfit. Mm -hmm. And yeah. she was such a great character. So... I'm like, oh, she's turned into a bad girl. She's going to do whatever she <laughs> wants. So that's my main memory of her as a child. I almost idealized her. Not that I wanted to be her or live in the 50s or whatever was happening there. Mm -hmm. But just like she was so, you know, bold. That's such a fan. It was such a fantasy at the moment, right? Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to be bold and wear shiny black clothes. And I actually am very bold and have worn outfits very similar to Olivia <laughs> Newton-John. She might've influenced me. And I think you wore a lot of the workout outfits from her uh, physical video as well at some point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my God. I look back and I'm like, oh, come on. If it wasn't for the hair, you know, I'm like, it's not bad. It's kind of cool. It's it could work now, you know. <laughs> yeah, I had no big affinity for her other than, you know, I always thought she was like a, a nice person. And, you know, she had a very successful career, obviously some massive hits back in the day. And, uh, you know, she did a lot for cancer awareness and stuff. So anyway, she was still relatively young. So sad to see her go. But she did have a really great career. Even more tragic, honestly, is Anne Heche dying today. She's 53 years old, just turned 53 recently. She's had such a crazy successful career. She still works so frequently. As a matter of fact, one of the shows I'm looking forward to the most this year, she's one of the stars of it. It is, I don't know if you heard about this, by the way, but The weekend, the artist has written a script and the director of Euphoria uh, came on board to produce and direct it. And he's basically a cult leader that um, has these, um, you know, women around him. And it's like a mystery that unfolds. And just this idea of like, you know, Euphoria and the style of Euphoria, along with The weekend, who I'm a big fan of The weekend, also. And this kind of very dark fantasy about California, which is a lot of what The weekend's music is about currently. Very interesting. And like I said, Anne Heche was in this show. They did finish wrapping it up. You know, it's, it's about to premiere in a few months, I guess, probably October when it comes out. So it won't affect production there. But just to say that she was still working a lot, obviously had a lot of personal issues, but it never seemed to impact her career, which, you know, she's very successful acting all the time, but obviously had her own personal demons and very sad. You know, she just apparently was intoxicated um, and crashed into someone's house and her car caught fire and she didn't recover. So it's very sad. That is very surprising. Yeah. I mean, she I didn't know very professional in front yeah. of the camera. She's always very professional. Yeah. Well, that's sad. Here's a film that I don't think you've ever seen that I would recommend, by the way, is she plays the mother. She plays Jeffrey Dahmer's mom in a movie called My Friend Dahmer. Have you ever seen this? I have. Yep. Anyway, yeah, an interesting film. If anyone hasn't ever seen it, it's not a horror movie. Uh, it's based on a true story of the comic book artist. This is based on a comic book who was one of Dahmer's only friends in high school. And uh, as you would expect, he was a very odd duck. But I don't think odd in ways that we can probably all know people who were strange in a similar ways. And we probably would never consider them to be potential serial killers. But it is creepy when you understand the context of what Dahmer will become. But an interesting film, by the way. So if you do track that down, and she's very good in it. She plays the mom. Relatively small role, but still good. And I think that movie's underseen. And it's definitely a solid film. That film is not creepy. It's cringy. Yes. That's yes. the best way to describe watching this film. Because you kind of feel sorry for Dahmer. Yes, of course. Yeah. It, 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 but he is still cringy. He's a creep. <laughs> He's a creep. Yeah. And it's, I've never been a bully, never. And watching people get bullied or watching people do the bullying makes me indignant and makes me react to like defend yeah. the person who I think is being victimized. But it's not because I want to hang out with them or it's just because I can't watch this happen. Right. It's almost selfish. I can't watch this happen. I have to stop this from happening because there's too many emotions and it doesn't say a lot about like my motivation. Like, oh, you know, bullying's wrong. And it's so cringy and uncomfortable to watch. Yeah. So when I'm watching Jeffrey Dahmer's character, 
my reaction to him would have been like, oh, he's so weird. But then people would pick on him and I'd be like, don't pick on him. <laughs> right. Don't pick on him because you're going to have to come through me. But it does, it's still like a weird reaction to have to him. One of the things I like the most about it, <laughs> I didn't want to do a whole review of the film, but I do want to talk about <laughs> it just for a minute more in the fact that I find it as a corrective in a way, oftentimes in pop culture, serial killers are made out to be superhuman in a way. And uh, it's a mythology that, you know, I love The Science of Lambs. I think it's an incredible film, but I think it has kind of fed into this mythologizing of killers. But when the reality is when you see these actual killers and you see their actual biographies and these mass killers as well, now these mass shooters, that they are bullied and pathetic most of the time. That's just to say that, you know, we should prevent that bullying, but also that these people can be dangerous. But at the same time, maybe less of one thing will lead to less of the other, hopefully. Um, yeah, that would be great. It knows how to hunt. I know how to survive. Whatever did this, I can kill it. So <laughs> total digression, one more thing to get into before we get into our main conversation, which is that we watched while we were hanging out together this week uh, at the shore was Prey. We watched the Predator prequel, Prey. And I'll give you my brief review here and I'm curious to get your feedback as well. Uh, you know, you probably know these <laughs> things because I was calling them out as we were watching the, the show, but I did, I, I first of all directed and based on a story by Dan Trachtenberg that he wrote with another screenwriter. I you know, love that Trachtenberg, who used to be a former podcaster, by the way, that he has now become a director. He directed 10 Cloverfield Lane. He's directed one of the Black Mirror episodes from the first Netflix season of that show. And he's had a successful directing career now and great for him. So I was rooting for this film. I thought that there's some weaknesses early on, specifically the characters seem a little too contemporary, considering this supposed to be taking place 300 years ago. I just found out today, by the way, that there is a version of this film you can watch where they are speaking in their native language. And I think that would have led the author, it would have been more authentic and wouldn't have bothered me where I kind of feel like these kids are almost like, you know, in a school play pretending to be a Native American from 300 years ago. So that's something that kind of rubbed me the wrong way early on. Their costumes are a little too pristine. This is a little, it just doesn't feel authentic. But what I would say is about halfway in when we get the main protagonist out on her own and she starts to uh, go one-on-one -on -one with the predator. The film gets very interesting. And I think thematically it's interesting also where you see this woman trapped in this very male-centric society and trying to uh, prove herself and learning you know, from the trappers, learning from all the different people that she encounters, the animals, the way that they fight against this predator. And she's always watching and always learning. And then she uses all that to get the predator at the end, who underestimates her because she's just an unarmed woman, right? So all of this is very interesting. And I think the film gets much better as it goes along. And some of the really bad special effects early on uh, get much better because the Predator effects are actually really well done. Uh, and I am a fan of the first Predator film, but pretty much not a fan of anything else related to Predator. So uh, you probably have less experience with the Predator series. What did you think of this film? To me, I just read it as an action film with yeah. a lot of Indian people running around. <laughs> and yes, very pristine outfits. They looked cool. Like I think some of them were wearing Gucci. There <laughs> yes. was a headband. It looked like it was tailored. They did like a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I think that headband is like in one of the Gucci ads. And that looks like it might. Yeah. They were very stylish, Native Americans. And I was watching thinking, this is like a girl power movie, mm -hmm. you know, like girl power. Yeah. But I enjoyed it for what it was. It, it was just fun to watch. It could have been watched with, you know, Charlotte even when we were like, oh, we got to get her out of the room. She's going to get scared. Like, I don't know. It could, it wasn't the type of thing that would have made you want to kick your kids out of the room. I don't know what that, the, some of the, you know, uh, skinned animals and some of the, uh, at least they don't skin, skin the people like they did in the first Predator film. That was a little more uh, extreme. 
so yeah, I mean, this would not have been <laughs> appropriate for a, for a seven-year-old, not in my opinion. <laughs> my kids accidentally, they said this was an accident. No. On Halloween, they're like, oh, you know, I was working and I come home and they had watched um, a marathon of... Saw. Yes, so. Saw. They saw a marathon of Saw. It wasn't while and you were working, by the way. It was the middle of the night. They stayed up all night and watched. Oh, the- is that what? I, that's okay. <laughs> yes. I feel a little. So bit it was not a mistake. Let off the not hook. an accident. Not an accident. They accidentally watched a marathon of Saw. So, and I took Andrew to see Mother when he was eleven because I <laughs> oh, yes, did not a, read the synopsis. That's egregious. Egregious. And mistake. that was not a good mom moment. That was <laughs> no, a mistake. No. He goes, oh, "This is the weirdest, funniest, <laughs> and most horrifying movie I've ever seen." And I was almost embarrassed. Like I wanted everyone to leave the theater before I walked Andrew out after the credits. So they didn't notice that I had brought this small child into this movie. So I would probably have let them see Prey. So just to uh, put everything in context again to all you listeners (laughs) out there, uh, Bluey premiered this week as I, you know, harped on last week and uh my daughter has already binged all the episodes i've only gotten around to seeing maybe 10 of them when she's in the room i haven't binged them all myself but some of them are truly excellent but just so you know that's my daughter's speed she will binge every single bluey episode she can get her hands on she's not really looking for prey but we do see where Celia, <laughs> serious silly is parenting she's trying to upgrade the kids to mother as quickly as possible <laughs> <laughs> it was a mistake that really was a mistake. I'm like, wow, this movie isn't so, you know, terrible for children. And then, <laughs> you know, these things are happening and then they escalate. It's just one big escalation after another. But yes, anybody who's seen Mother knows that there's a specific <laughs> scene that is probably the most. I mean, there's pretty many inappropriate scenes in that film, but mostly this one terrible <laughs> plot turn. That was not what I was expecting. Okay, the main thing I want to talk about, and it's really an excuse to talk about it because this week on Netflix, they premiered Bo Burnham's outtakes from the Emmy-winning Outside special that he put together last year for Netflix. Now, this material is not even new, by the way. He put these outtakes on YouTube uh, maybe three or four months ago, and they've been available on YouTube. Although I think most people will watch it on Netflix because that's how most people consume everything. But I just wanted to use this as an excuse to talk about Bo Burnham and specifically about this because I know Celia had not watched it. So it's just another excuse to talk about this. I've never talked about it on the podcast. And uh, just Bo Burnham in general, by the way, Celia, some recommendations for you. One of these I know you've seen, but uh, I knew nothing about Bo Burnham. I knew he existed. Basically, he had when at 16 years old started to post videos on YouTube when YouTube was only a year old. He became incredibly famous on YouTube, one of the first huge stars on YouTube and uh, had a huge following and, you know, put out multiple albums, did multiple specials. And like he mentions in this special about five years ago, when he was only 20, about five years before he recorded that special, I should say, because that's like seven years ago now, he was only early 20s, mid 20s at this point, already a star for years because of his YouTube celebrity. And he basically had a nervous breakdown uh, on stage. And he stopped performing. However, that gave him an opportunity to start working in other arenas. So the first thing I ever saw him do was direct Chris Rock's special Tambourine. And that was honestly the first thing that any kind of content I'd consumed that had to do with Bo Burnham. The second thing that I saw was a movie called Eighth Grade, which I highly recommend, which he wrote and directed. And it's about a girl in eighth grade and just like a week in her life. And this is like basically a horror movie. (laughs) It's like, oh my God, it made me so stressed out to have a daughter (laughs) and watch this film, I should say. And uh, it's excellent. Really like one of the best movies I saw the year it came out. I think it was 2018 maybe when that came out. So I was like, wow, who's this Bo Burnham guy? Who knew he could direct? And wow, look at this movie's incredible. And then the next thing I see him in is as an actor. I see him in Promising Young Woman as the love interest there. And I thought he was so charming. As a matter of fact, the film in a way miscast him because when things don't work out for that couple, I kind of thought that that was like lacking in the, in the, in the story. Like I basically really wanted things to work out with them. But I do think he's well cast in the fact that he's someone you really root for as a nice guy. And then deep down inside, maybe a little bit scuzzier than you expect. And I know you've seen him in that. You know, I, I don't think you've ever seen Eighth Grade, but I know you've seen Promising Young Woman. And then he goes and makes this very popular. I mean, the album associated to this special 
inside has gone gold. It's that that's how popular it's been. And like went to number one in like multiple countries. It was like a huge success. And uh, anyway, he recorded this during the pandemic over a course of about a year. And uh, yeah, then he puts it out as a special on Netflix. And of course, becomes a huge success during the pandemic when everybody feels exactly like he does in that special, right? So that's the first time you're seeing it. What was your impression of him in general? You know, some of these other things I mentioned, but of course, of the special itself. I wasn't really sure what to expect. And I like not expecting anything, yeah. to be honest, when I go into any experience, I like to just ride the wave. First, I'm like, oh, it's, you know, yeah, we, it's going to be one of those, you know, series where people just like talk to themselves or they play with puppets or they do crazy things or they make fun of people. <laughs> one of those, one of those. And <laughs> it's exactly that. Yeah. It's literally exactly everything I just said and much, much more. But I think you should watch the movie from beginning to end without yeah. like watching it in clips because it escalates. Yes. Yeah. It's in kind of real time where this is the first day, this is the next day, this is the next day. And they don't make that super, super clear the whole yeah. time. They do mention it. So you, you get the gist. And I don't know if you mixed up the clips, but the way the movie set up, it looks like an escalating oh, yeah. thing is happening. And yeah. it is like the kind of humor that I like the best because it's very dry humor. Mm -hmm. He's talking normal, but, <laughs> yeah. and I put, you got to put the subtitles on everybody, by the way, put on the subtitles. He's talking normal and the stuff that he's saying is so, so funny. And he makes fun of people. Like I like when he does the, this is, like white women's Instagram. <laughs> yes. That yes. was so funny, but you're not <laughs> expecting this. Yeah. And it, I found it hilarious and very raw because clearly he is a little depressed in a lot of this series, but he also makes fun of his depression. Yes. Like he, he talks himself down from stuff with music. That is really good. Yep. I'm like, Oh, I like this song. Yep. So it's very artsy and I love it. I thought it was great, but I think you have to see it like all the way through because some of the humor, the part, the reason it's so funny is because like, it'll be like a ridiculous thing that he's doing, but it kind of feels, you can relate to it in so many ways. Like when he was doing that, that whole section with the sandwich and he kept yes. taking pictures of it and yes. like making movies <laughs> yeah. around it. Like, you know, cause people like to take pictures of their food. Mm -hmm. I am guilty of this by the way. <laughs> so like if the, if it looks really nice, I'll be like, Oh yeah, look how pretty that is. But during the pandemic, people had nothing to do and they're like making elaborate meals and they're taking pictures of everything bagels and he makes the ugliest peanut butter sandwich ever which is hilarious with like the ends of the, <laughs> the bread. ends of the bread on a he, paper plate on a paper plate because he refuses to wash the plates ever again <laughs> yeah yeah and then there's a whole panoramic view of the the peanut butter sandwich and <laughs> yes. he's spreading peanut butter with like a fork but yep. he is making <laughs> right. fun of like all the stuff that we did during the pandemic and it's hilarious you, like you brought up white woman's Instagram. I think what's so great in that song and it's kind of his talent uh, in general is that, you know, he's obviously making fun of himself. He obviously is very serious about what he's doing, by the way, like you said, it's very artsy. He, even as he makes fun of himself for being artsy, he still is going to do it anyway, <laughs> because yeah. th that is, you know, that's his, that's his brand. But white woman's Instagram, I think is a perfect example of that because like you said, he's probably looking at all these people's Instagrams during the pandemic. People are spending way too much time curating their Instagram feeds. and uh, But then he has a pivot in the song where he talks about someone who's missing their mom on the 10th anniversary of their death. And it's like, so all of a sudden we've been joking about this fictional white woman that we're laughing at. And then there's this pivot where all of a sudden it's just like, but there's an actual person there, you know, in this, uh, behind this, you know, Instagram feed, right? The caption says, I can't believe it. It's been a decade since you've been gone. Mama, I miss you. I miss sitting with you in the front yard, still figuring out how to keep living without you. It's got a little better, but it's still hard. Mama, I got a job I love in my own apartment. Mama, I got a boyfriend and I'm crazy about him. Your little girl didn't do too bad. Mama, I love you. 
Yeah, it's like when I was texting you, I was saying this is hilarious. Also, he is clearly very depressed. Like it's, <laughs> right. it's kind of sad too, but still really funny because it depends what kind of humor you think is funny. Like when someone's trying really hard to make me laugh, I find it like cringy, but not funny. Like I start getting uncomfortable and I don't find it funny. I want it to stop. I like the kind of humor where someone's just dryly doing something or, uh, you know, something funny just accidentally happens. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, when someone trying not to fall and it looks like they're in slow motion, it's like a, it becomes a slow motion fall. They're just in midair for a long time, an unusually long time. It's fascinating. Like, <laughs> I think that's funny because it wasn't planned. This guy's funny in that way because he'll be saying something that all of a sudden becomes hilarious after you think about it for like two or three seconds. And, uh, and but it's so curious. What's interesting is that he works so hard at it, especially when you see the outtakes that he's, you know, crafting these songs. You hear him walking around, which is funny, like the seeing the outtake segment, if anyone hasn't watched that part, which is obviously just available recently. I mean, I can relate to that. Like there's so many times, especially when I lived alone, where I'd be walking around the house, talking to myself all the time, working something out in my head. And you see him doing that, right? Especially if you know the special, you see him trying out lyrics to what is eventually going to be these songs. Uh, speaking of the songs, I mean, there's so many great songs on here, but I think that maybe my favorite is Welcome to the Internet, which I think is uh, so funny. Hold on to your socks, cause a random guy just kindly sent you photos of his cock. They are grainy and off-putting, he just sent you more. Don't act surprised, you know you like it, you whore. See a man behanded, get offended, see a shrink. Show us pictures of your children, tell us every thought you think. Start a rumor, buy a broomer, send a death threat to a boomer. Or DM a girl and groomer, do a zoomer, find a tumor in your Here's a healthy breakfast option. <laughs> See, I mean, he escalates all the yes. time. That's why he's funny. That's why you have to watch it from beginning to end. I love the song that he sings to his girlfriend on their fifth anniversary. Fifth anniversary yes. That song is so funny. That's from the outtakes, actually. That's from the extra footage, which, yes, very funny. Actually, I'll call, play that a little bit right now. Hey, baby. Uh, <laughs> me. By the I way, like he's, that too. this is very much, yeah. First of all, this is very much a Drake you know, he, he kind of is imitating different performers here. And this one's very much like in, you know, kind of a Drake song. But uh, this is especially funny, like you said, where he is um, <laughs> this this uh, audio recording, which once again is some, like a cliche in some songs. But I like how it's just like, I don't even know if you could get this off of your phone. <laughs> yeah, let me play it. Our anniversary is coming up. It's a pretty big one. And um, I wrote a song for you. So I'm just leaving you this voicemail because um, I want the song to begin with this voicemail. Like, I want the voicemail to play in the beginning of it. So uh, if you could just download this voicemail when you get it and then text it to me. Um, you might need to, like, download another app to download. The, I don't know if you can rip your voicemail right off your phone. You might need to, like... Just Google it. Don't call me and ask me because I know I, know I would be do. so gonna, annoyed if like this, my boyfriend gonna, you think know, you just can't do it. And you're gonna call me, message. but then I'm just gonna Google it. So just you Google it. You're an adult. You can figure it out. Um, so just figure it out and text me the voicemail um, immediately if you wouldn't mind. Like, immediately really, after all, that, I would not you. text um, it immediately. I would just be too annoyed. I do love the part here in the song, though, when he is complaining about like their, you know, the petty argument over the. Uh... It's hilarious. <laughs> you reach over and you take my dumpling. You don't even say do you mind or nothing. Why would you assume that you're entitled to a dumpling? So I look at you. You look back at me like, what the fuck did I do? If you really wanted some dim sum, then you really should have gotten some. When we put in the order, you say you're a psycho. And I, I don't want to fight, so let's just drop this. It's not a big deal. Okay, but for the record, you owe me a dumpling. I mean it. I won't forget. <laughs> I won't forget. <laughs> Some of the slower songs are really nice too. Like I really like this song. Me and Kim were singing this song all the time after we watched the special. This one. Hey, what can you say? We were overdue, but it'll be over soon. You wait. Hey, what can you say? We were overdue. 
But even in this song, he has some pretty funny lyrics. I like where he's talking about, you know, that's that's like basically, you know, all these bad things that have happened. That's just history. And he goes, 20,000 years down, seven more to go. <laughs> yeah. Everything he says, you know, when you think about it for two seconds, like I was talking about before, you know, when you're looking at someone and they're talking to you very seriously, but the stuff they're saying, they're clearly fucking with you. <laughs> it becomes clear after a few seconds. And I noticed that a lot of people don't notice it you know anyway that's funny to me yeah the song where feeling forced to vote for for biden oh, yes i love that one yes that's a really funny one. Play they're gonna, they're the gonna make biden me vote. i can't believe they're gonna make me vote for biden what <laughs> <They're> so gonna... <laughs> funny they're really gonna make me vote for joe biden <laughs> like a dance song you yeah. see this in a club i could get down to like i want to dance <laughs> it's so funny how is the best case scenario joe biden <laughs> how is the best case scenario joe biden <laughs> oh my god When I heard that, like immediately, that was extremely funny. And then that there are no lyrics except yeah. for those. That's it. Makes yeah. it, it's like never ending. It was hilarious. But because it's a dance song, in my opinion, you could just have that going for like five minutes straight and just dance to it. I think like it's a great song. Yes. My favorite part of this whole special, by the way, the way he structured it, is that he has these more and more elaborate different songs about Jeff Bezos, <laughs> you know, the CEO of uh, Amazon, which of course everybody was like kind of, in, you know, having everything delivered to the house from Amazon at the time. And Amazon had a incredible uh, a string of his profitable quarters during the pandemic. But it was very funny that, you know, he starts off with this like kind of acoustic Jeffrey Bezos. But I love when he like at one point, he's like almost, you, you know, he's either a very good performer or he really is at the end of his rope. <laughs> and he's like, why am I still making this? Why am I still making this? And he goes like, fuck it. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. Okay. You got to keep watching. I can keep going. And they cut immediately to him, like in this wig and all this like light show going on. And he's doing Jeffrey Bezos. And it's just like, you know, that he has like basically just completely lost his mind at this moment in the, the show. <laughs> yeah, that's why it's funny. Jeffrey Bezos, Jeffrey Bezos. That's just the thing that made me laugh the most in that special was just seeing that moment where he's just like, you know, disheveled and he hasn't showered and he's just like, I'm done with this. I'm tired of it. And then he goes with this elaborate <laughs> costumes <laughs> and light show. He's just like, nope, he's not done yet. <laughs> yeah. And but it's also very human. Yeah. You, you sympathize with him. I, you know, it's so funny. I actually thought about this when I first watched and I was talking to someone about it. This is going to be. Because I think about even now, just rewatching this last night, by the way, I rewatched it for the first time since, uh, you know, I watched it the first time for this conversation. And I'd forgotten, first of all, how good it was. But I also forgot what the pandemic was like. Like, we've gotten kind of past it now to the mo to a large extent. And as I'm watching him, I'm like, yeah, there were periods of time when we were stuck in the house for days at a time when we were like, you know, just waving across the driveway at our neighbors. Like, it was pretty crazy. You know, it was a little bit nuts back then. Right. So. And it's worse if you were alone. Like oh, yeah. oh, I yeah. had, exactly. you know, people around me and mm -hmm. family. So yeah. to me, it felt like I was off from work, but it was a staycation. Yeah. I've, I know that's not a sensitive thing to say, but it felt a little like a staycation. I had nothing to do. I could binge watch whatever I want. I could read. I could like run on my treadmill and not have to interact with people or say no to something I really don't feel like doing. Like I felt off the hook in so many ways. So, but if you're alone, that is not probably what's going through your head. I mean, it must be lonely, yep. scary, yep. frustrating. What do you do with your time? As you watch this movie, like he is just, and the room gets worse and worse yep. and worse as you go along. It starts off with like a table and a chair. And as time goes by, he starts losing his mind. He starts thinking of more and more outrageous skits to do. Yeah. It could be a lonely experience if you're just sitting there depressed and freaked out by the state of the world. Because I just tried not to think about it. And yeah. I didn't have to because that's so 
much going on around me at every minute that I would pass out exhausted. And I'm sure I did that intentionally. Yeah. But if you're alone, how do you do that? Yeah. I think people will watch this in the future and remember this time through this special to a large extent. And what you said is absolutely correct about being alone. In his case, by the way, he talks about it in the outtakes. He just talks about it. But he also says it in one of the best songs here, which is um, All Eyes on Me, where he also uses it as part of a song, which is absolutely true that he had had this nervous breakdown. He moved away from doing stand up. He finally, after five years, he goes back and does stand up. He starts he goes on a stand up tour. He starts in January and two months later, the whole world gets shut down. So he's finally like kind of gotten his courage up and done his self-help and everything else to get to the point where he can go out and start performing again. And then the whole world shuts down. Like, you know, this is especially traumatic for him in this particular circumstance. You know, he was isolating himself. You know, he was in a very bad space at one point and now he has to be isolated. Like that's exactly the opposite of what like his psychiatrist was telling him to do. He now has to do it to himself. That was a very scary time. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the moments in there where I did think about it were creepy. Yeah. Like an alter reality was happening. Yeah. So it was not a comfortable thing to think about. And he's alone in his apartment. Yeah. It's the worst case. So, <laughs> and you can see it in his eyes that he is a little, you know, nervous yeah. about the situation when he's not acting. Is there any song you want to hear on the way out at all? Well, we heard most of the soundtrack from this movie, which I'm going to also put on my Spotify. So <laughs> yeah. that's going to happen. Nothing. I mean, I've been watching Banshee from 2013. It is timeless. It's amazing. <laughs> timeless. There's sex. There's this guy in this situation that is completely plausible in the show all the way through. And it becomes more and more plausible the more and more ridiculous things happen. I think everybody should watch Banshee. I'm addicted. And Carlos, who's never seen it, is like riveted by this. Riveted. So that's my recommendation. I put that off for so long <clears throat> and I keep saying, like I was telling you guys this weekend that, you know, that it's, uh, you know, it keeps popping up over and over again and I just never have gotten around to watching it. But to everybody out there, it is now on HBO Max. They've moved it over from Cinemax over to HBO Max finally. So everybody can watch it if they want. You have to watch it. Everybody's like a ninja. The violence <laughs> is really well done. It is really impressive, really. Anyway, so yeah, go see that. All right. I'm going to give that a shot. You should. Are you feeling nervous? Are you having fun? It's almost over, it's just begun. Don't overthink this, look in my eye. Don't be scared, don't be shy. Come on in, the water's fine. We're going to go where everybody knows, everybody knows, everybody We're going to go where everybody knows, everybody knows. Get your fucking hand up Get on out of your seat 